0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian, and this is Our Weird World. So in the previous episode, I said I was going to do some more true crime stuff, and that's what I'm going to do here on this episode as well. Um, And I had talked about doing the most infamous serial killers in each state here in the US. So like I said before I took a list of all 50 states put in alphabetical order A to Z and then I created a little code to randomize the numbers and input so I wouldn't just go in alphabetical order just give me random numbers. So the first one I did last last week was uh, Mark Gudeau of Arizona and with my random order I got 21 for my second one which on my list would be the state of Massachusetts. Now, Massachusetts has definitely had its share of serial killers and, and a lot of history in true crime going back hundreds of years, being that it's one of our oldest states, um, really rich history going, you know, not, not just things like this, like serial killers, but you talk about um, like the Salem witch trials, things like that, a lot of history that goes back, like I said, hundreds of years. To that part of the country and to Massachusetts. But as far as serial killers, what most people might consider the most infamous would be known as the Boston Strangler. And that's what we're going to talk about in this episode. Who that is, what the Boston Strangler did, evidence, a little bit of uh, controversy and some evidence. Um, but one thing I want to note when I was doing my research, um, I came upon there was a movie done in 1968 about this, about these these murders. I've not seen it. It's called Boston Strangler. Um, let's see. It came, like I said, it came out in 1968. It stars Tony Curtis, Henry Fonda, George Kennedy, Mike Kellen, Murray Hamilton, Sally Kellerman, and William Hickey. Um, looks like it would actually probably be pretty good. Like I said, I've never seen it, um, but if you're interested, check it out. If you have seen it, let me know if it's worth watching. I kind of would like to watch it just to see um, how it compares to the information I found here. Now, there's actually another movie that's not out yet. It's coming out soon on Hulu called Boston Strangler. They dropped the word the, and it's just Boston Strangler. Um, It was actually filmed between the end of 2021 and early 2022, and it stars uh, Kira Knightley. And she is actually portraying Loretta McLaughlin who is a reporter that was very instrumental in this series of murders she actually came up with the name Boston Strangler so they did they filmed a movie about this reporter um, and it's actually done by uh, produced by Ridley Scott if you're in, into movies you know that guy's name he's done incredible works you know one of my favorites alien but anyways yeah that's supposed to be coming out soon i wasn't able to find a date exactly when it will be available but it did say it's coming to hulu soon you know, look out for that. I I think um, when it is available, I'm going to try to watch it. So I think that should be pretty neat. So yeah, so what and or who exactly was the Boston Strangler? What, What happened in the 1960s? So this occurred during the early 1960s in Boston. He was later dubbed the Boston Strangler and murdered 13 women around the Boston area. Now later, these murders were attributed to a man by the name of Albert DeSalvo. And he did confess to them, and there was evidence that linked him with the final victim. There was some controversy later, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But that's who was convicted and was put in prison for these murders. Now, initially when these murders started happening, obviously they didn't call him the Boston Strangler. Like I said before in the Mark Gudo episode, you know these serial killers get these, these names dubbed on them for you know, heinous serial murders like this, serial crimes, whatnot. And I get they do it because it's an easy way to to put a name with whoever's doing this, especially before you actually know who it is. It makes perfect sense. But anyways, they had different names for this, the Boston Strangler, Albert DeSalvo, before he was caught. Uh, one of them, they first knew him as the Mad Strangler of Boston. On July 8th, 1962, the Sunday Herald, wrote, quote, a mad strangler is loose in Boston. This was in an article titled Mad Strangler Kills Four Women in Boston. So this was while the murders were going on. Obviously again they didn't know who it was so they're trying to put a name with it. So initially they called him the Mad Strangler of Boston. Bit of a mouthful but um, later it was also some people referred to him as the Phantom Fiend or even the Phantom Strangler. Now this was because of the manner in which he would be able to get into the homes or apartments of these women and kill them. He basically would literally go to the front door and, and talk his way into their apartment and then kill them. And we'll, we'll get into that more here in, in just a moment. Now in 1963, there were two investigative reporters for Record American. This was Jean Cole and Loretta McLaughlin, the one I just talked about that they have this new movie coming out that Keira Knightley stars in and portrays her they wrote a series about the killings and they were the ones that dubbed the name the Boston Strangler. And this is the one that stuck. This is the one that, that stayed with it. You know, definitely as far as just, you know, a name like that of someone like this, it definitely has more ring to it. Rolls off the tongue a little better than the, the Mad Strangler of Boston. So the Boston Strangler, that's what they dubbed him. And that's the name that stuck. Um, once DeSalvo's confession came out in court, uh, like I said, the Boston Strangler name was already out there in the world, and that's what everybody knew him as. So when when did this happen? When did this occur? Now, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back a little bit and talk about Albert DeSalvo, but I want to first talk about when this occurred. So this all happened between June 14, 1962 and January 4, 1964. Like I said, 13 women were murdered. They were single. Now they ranged in age; it, it was a big age gap. There, there was the youngest was 19 years old, the oldest was 85 years old, and everything in between. So there wasn't any one particular age group that he was going after. He wasn't just going after teenagers or or 20 somethings or 30 somethings. He was all over the place as far as their age range. It didn't. It seemed like that didn't matter. He was going after any woman. That was singled by herself. There were some that were stabbed. Most of them were strangled. Especially with uh, stockings. Um, and that's one thing. There was a, one. Some. Okay yeah investigators. I missed that. Some of them referred to him as the silk stocking murders. That's just what they called these murders. I don't think it was like a name they officially like put on him at the time. It was just some of the investigators that were looking into these murders and trying to figure it out referred to it as the silk stocking murders because a lot of these women were strangled with their own stockings. So let's talk a little bit about Albert DeSalvo and then we'll come back and talk about the victims and exactly what he did and when he did this. So Albert DeSalvo, he was born Albert Henry DeSalvo, September 3rd, 1931. He passed away November 25th, 1973 at the age of 42 when he was younger, he had a uh, quite a history when he was younger of crimes, from petty crimes to some more serious crimes. Um, but where this all stems from, uh, some people would believe that part of it would be his upbringing with his parents. His father was known to be a violent alcoholic who would unfortunately beat his wife, so Albert's mother. And you know, growing up seeing that sort of thing it's going to leave an impression on you. You know, you you see this and hear about this a lot with people and these sort of, people that do these sort of crimes where they have really rough upbringing, you know, it makes you feel bad and empathetic towards them as children. I'm not going to be empathetic towards them as adults for what they did to others. Absolutely not. It's It's absolutely disgusting what someone like him and other people have done as they get older and, and go on to do these heinous crimes and murder people and whatever other things they do. But as a kid, you know, when they still have that chance to, you know, before they get older and do these things, you know, there's an opportunity for them to to change and 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 not go this route. But you start getting into the things of like like nature versus nurture. And unfortunately, you see it a lot, like I said, where kids are in these upbringings of abuse, neglect, whatever. And they see this and it's just it it's normalized to them you know seeing their father beat their mother like in this case of of his of his alcoholic father and that that stays with them and and you know does things to them mentally growing up so it's very unfortunate for them as a child i feel sorry for them as a child having to go through that but then later as an adult to make that decision to go off and and murder people no i don't i don't care who you are that's i don't agree with that. It's totally totally wrong anyways that's just my personal opinion about that. I, I'm, I'm sure most people probably could agree that, you know, going and murdering 13 women, you know, not good, right? Anyways, I'm rambling. So his father was known to be a violent alcoholic, would beat his mother. At one point, it was reported that he, his, his father beat his wife so hard that knocked all of her teeth out, even bent one of her fingers backwards to the point that it broke, and he did this in front of his children, Albert and his sibling. Now, it was also reported that his father would bring home prostitutes and engage in sexual acts with them in front of his wife and his children. Now, that also is going to leave a lasting impression, seeing something like that, you know, because as a young kid, you know, Your understanding of that sort of act, you know, sensual sex between, you know, mother and father, once you learn about it, obviously it, it leaves a different, you have a different idea of it as a kid growing up, right? But to see something like that, where your father is bringing in these sex workers and performing sex acts on them in front of you and in front of your mother, his wife, I just, I can't imagine what that would be like. Just the sort of, I don't know, confusion about the whole situation and just what it would leave. It. And then the impression that it leaves with you as you grow up, the, the idea that you have about sex, you know, as a man with a woman, you, you see these things that your father did, you know, and, and it's going to leave a different uh, attitude with you about that sort of thing. I, I want to say almost to the point where you'd probably think that that's okay to basically abuse women and and just whatever these crazy sex acts he was doing with them. Anyways, he, they, they went through a, a lot. Uh, It it definitely left an impression on on him. And DeSalvo, as a young man, he actually started torturing animals. And he started shoplifting. He started stealing. And this was when he was pretty young. So there was already this pattern that was like he's going in the wrong direction. And he was so young. This was in the 1940s, uh, late 1930s into the early 1940s. You know, back then, it it it, wasn't. wasn't the same as it is now, and in just the—I'm sure the way he was raised and the the, the family he, that he was around—it it they probably at the time didn't really think much of it. Anyways, who knows? I'm so let's get back on track here. So in 1943, uh, November to be exact, he was 12 years old, Albert, and he was actually arrested for battery and robbery. Uh, a month later, in December that same year, he was sent to the Lyman School for Boys. Now, this was a, what would you call it, a a reform school that was established by the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and it operated between 1886 and 1971. And kind of neat little quick history about this school, it was the first reform school of its kind in the United States of America. So that's kind of cool. So he was there until October of 1944, so almost a year. And then he was paroled from there. He was then working as a delivery boy. Um, Almost two years later. He stole a car. And returned to the Lyman School. For stealing that car. Now after completing his second sentence while there. He actually joined the U.S. Army. And he served in the U.S. Army. He did did one tour. He served as a military police sergeant. With the 2nd Squadron. 14th Armored uh, Cavalry Regiment. Um, I did find looking this that he had a court-martial I couldn't find what his court-martial was for now I've served in the U.S. Navy I've I was in the security department on the ship that I served and I worked in I I had to work as a bailiff one time in a court-martial we did other captain's masses things like that and I did a court-martial once and you have to do something fairly heinous to be put into a court martial. You know, it doesn't have to be anything like, like murder. If you, if you murder somebody in in the military, you're definitely going to court martial, but it's going to be a little bit, little bit bigger than like the one that I did. Um, Ours was on the ship with a a JAG. uh, That's a judge advocate general and other military uh, legal uh, personnel that were there. So I saw this, that he went to a court martial. I couldn't find exactly for what, but He was discharged with an honorable discharge. So it makes me think that he did something bad enough to go to court-martial, but not so severe that they would give him like a dishonorable discharge or an other-than-honorable discharge or something. So if he still got out with an honorable discharge, it probably wasn't too terrible, or they came to some agreement in the court-martial for him to serve some kind of sentence maybe maybe part of why he did one term they they discharged him who knows I couldn't find exactly on that but anyways he did serve in the U.S. Army like I said as a military police sergeant had a court martial but received an honorable discharge now later when he was arrested for these murders in 1967 uh there's some confusion because he was shown wearing a U.S. Navy uniform a dress blues uniform with a petty officer third class or it's an E-4 insignia on his sleeve. So there's there's some confusion with that, with him wearing that. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit more later, but it's just kind of a funny note that he served in the U.S. Navy. Excuse me. He served in the U.S. Army as a sergeant, which is an E-5, and then was later seen wearing this U.S. Navy dress blue uniform with an E-4 insignia on it when he was arrested. So at the time when the Boston Strangler murders were occurring before they knew who it was, he lived... Uh, in a place called Malden or Malden, Massachusetts, on 11 Florence Street Park in Malden, Massachusetts. So that's a little bit about him leading up to that, up to this, the events and the murders. So let's go back and talk about these victims, what happened, when they happened, what he did to them. So like he said, he did this to these single women in their apartments Homes, he would sexually assault them and then either strangle them or stab them or both. Now, police at the time they did believe one man was the perpetrator. Some believed that it was multiple, but they were mostly leaning towards that it was one, linking all these together. There was no signs of forced entry into these homes. So it's believed that either these women knew their assailant or willingly let him into their homes um, some believe that maybe it was like perhaps they believe it might have been like a maintenance man or um, like a service or delivery man or something um, or maybe that he even dressed up that way and and portrayed himself as that and they would let him in because that oh hey I'm you know this is apartment I'm working as a maintenance man here at this apartment I need to look at you know whatever it might be some excuse to get in there. and they say oh okay cool he's here to, here to check on something, let him in. All right, fine. And then it would escalate from there. So like I said, there's no signs of forced entry. There's these different beliefs that he was coming up as a maintenance man, delivery man, whatever, into their homes and, and they were willingly letting him in. Despite the extents of the media covering this, obviously he kept murdering. And, you know, it wasn't like it is now with media coverage where everybody has cell phones and computers and and cameras on their cell phones and and tablets and whatnot can instantly share something online but still at the time there was a lot of media coverage around it and with that like I said you had uh, Loretta McLaughlin who broke the story and and dubbed the name the Boston Strangler who was covering it and and wrote these these series on the murders that was going on at the time you know like I said this was also done with Gene Cole so you know that at the time they were they were going out there and reporting this a lot and putting the information out there. So there's all this media coverage all over the place around Massachusetts. And it was, you know, it was very widespread and getting bigger and bigger. And people knew about it. Now, because of this, a lot of residents around the Boston area purchasing of things such as like tear gas, um, locks, deadbolts, things like that for your doors, like skyrocketed. People were buying these things like crazy and, you know, having extra locks uh, put on their doors and things like that. So, you know, the media coverage was obviously out there. People were reading the newspaper and seeing this, listening to the radio. I'm sure at the time that was very big, listening to the news on the radio. So people were, were, th- were thinking about it and wanted to be more secure. And there was actually at the time reports that a lot of women, especially single women, started moving out of the area and getting away from the Boston area because of this, because they're scared. And, and you can't blame them, right? They're, you know, you're seeing all these news reports of single women being attacked and murdered in their own homes, yeah, it's pretty scary, right? You're probably not going to want to be in the area, so I can't blame them for for doing that and a lot, of, a lot of women moving out of the area. Now, the Massachusetts Attorney General at the time, Edward W. Brooke, he helped coordinate the various police task force on this at the time um, while they were investigating and trying to find the perpetrator. He actually allowed a parapsychologist by the name of Peter Herkos or Herkus to use his supposed what what he said uh, alleged or supposed extrasensory perception or ESP to uh, analyze these cases. Now he's the one uh, this Hercos, that claimed it was a single person that was responsible for these murders. It was a bit controversial at the time obviously letting this this uh, parapsychologist in to use ESP but they did they did allow it and to help with the investigation. however, this parapsychologist Herkos he actually provided a quote minutely detailed description of the wrong person um and both he and the attorney general Brooke were ridiculed by this uh in the media uh, in the press because of this so Brooke was ridicul- ridiculed for letting uh, Herkos the psychologist in and do these ESP you know things and look th- and then he came up with this description of the wrong person so he was ridiculed for that so it didn't look well for those two and it didn't look very well for the police that allowed this to happen as well um now the police were kind of some were believed it was one person but a lot of them were convinced that it had to be more than one person at the time it was it seemed like they were kind of all over the place they didn't really know what they were looking for if it was just one person or multiple people if were they connected or were they not connected so at the, at the time, it, it, their investigation was, was very difficult because of that. So, let's go through the name of the victims, who they were, and when they were killed. So, the first one was Anna Elsa uh, Slacer's. Slessers? She was 56 years old at the time. Now, she was, according to the investigation, sexually assaulted with an unknown object and then strangled with the belt from her bathrobe. And this occurred on June 14th, 1962. And this occurred in Boston, Massachusetts, at her address of 77 Gainsborough Street. The next victim was Mary Mullen. She was the oldest. She was 85 years old. She, for after their their investigation, they determined that she actually died from a heart attack because of this attack from... DeSalvo. Now, in his confession, he actually stated that she collapsed as he grabbed her. So that's when they assumed that she had the heart attack. You know, he, he came in there under whatever pretense that she let him in. He went to attack her, and she collapsed. And they later said that she had a heart attack. Did he uh, d- directly? Did he cause her death? Absolutely, yes, I believe that. Um, but he didn't. According to the investigation, he didn't actually do the actual murder on her Um, but still obviously he's attacking her she's so scared and her age she had a heart attack and died from it unfortunately so obviously he was there to murder her either way this occurred on June 28th 1962 so just two weeks after the first one this was at 1435 Commonwealth Avenue Boston Massachusetts now just two days later he would come back to the same area to the address of 1940 Commonwealth Avenue, Boston, Massachusetts, where he would murder Nina Frances Nichols. She was 68 years old, and he would sexually assault her and then strangle her with her nylon stockings. On the exact same day, the same day, June 30th, 1962, he would then go to 73 Newhall Street in Lynn, Massachusetts, where he would kill 65-year-old Helen Elizabeth Blake, in the same manner he sexually assaulted her strangled her with her own nylon stockings then almost two months later so he had a, a bit of a break here went quiet for a while so these were the first four this is when that was my dog making noise again um, so this was the first four this was when they had the name the mad strangler of boston going around they hadn't dubbed him the Boston strangler yet it took a bit of a break Later, on August 19th, 1962, at 7 Grove Street, Boston, Massachusetts, he would sexually assault and strangle 74-year-old Ida Otis Erga. Two days later, so he's back on a roll. Two days later, August 21st, at 435 Columbia Road, Boston, Massachusetts, he would murder 67-year-old Jane Buckley Sullivan. Again, sexually assaulted her and strangled her with her own nylon stockings. Then he took another break for another couple months. On December 5th, 1962, he would murder 20 year old Sophie Clark again, sexually assaulted her, strangled her with her nylon stockings. This was at 315 Huntington Avenue, Boston, Massachusetts. And then almost a month later, at the end of December, December 31st, New Year's Eve, um, he went after another, another young lady. She was 22 years old, Patricia Jane Bullock Bizette. Again, strangled her with her own nylon stockings. And this was at 515 Park Drive, Boston, Massachusetts. Then he took another big break for a few months. The next one he committed was on March 6th, 1963 at 319 Park Street, Lawrence, Massachusetts. This was 69-year-old Mary Ann Brown. He raped, beat, strangled. And this was the first one that he stabbed to death. So he both strangled and stabbed her. Again, this was March 6th. On the same day again, here we go again, same day, March 6th, 1963, at 4 University Road, Cambridge, Massachusetts, 26-year-old Beverly Sammons, or Sammons, he would stab her to death. Then he would take another break, and on September 8th, 1963, he raped, strangled, with her own nylon stockings, 58-year-old, 58-year-old Marie Evelina Corbin. And this occurred on September 8, 1963, like I said, at 224 Lafayette Street in Salem, Massachusetts. Then he took another short break, and on November twenty third, 1963, he, again, strangled with her own stockings 22-year-old Joanne Marie Graff at 54 Essex Street, Lawrence, Massachusetts. And then the last one that he would commit Would be another couple months later, on January 4th, 1964. Again, he sexually assaulted and strangled with her own nylon stockings. This was the youngest one. This was teenager, 19-year-old Mary Ann Sullivan at 44A Charles Street, Boston, Massachusetts. So those are all the 13 women that he murdered at the time. Now, at the time, they had originally attributed 60-year-old Margaret Davis of Roxbury and 14-year-old Cheryl Laird of Lawrence to the Boston Strangler. But through later evidence, they decided that those were unrelated and were not from him. They just happened to be around the same time, around close to the same areas as well. So on October 27th, 1964, this would be later after all of these murders had occurred, uh, there was a stranger who entered a young woman's home Posing as a detective, he said that he was a detective. He came into this house. He tied the victim to her bed, sexually assaulted her, and then left. And as he was leaving, told her that he is sorry. Said, "I'm sorry." Now, this woman to the police described the attacker as basically matching the description of Albert Desalvo, and it would later lead the police to identify Albert Desalvo. They did publish this a photo of him and then a lot of women came forward and identified him as the man who had assaulted him. Th- these were women obviously that weren't murdered that, that survived that so he was going around he always been doing this for a while and doing other assaults probably done a lot of these similar to this where he'd go in there and then would suddenly leave. So a lot of women came forward and identified said yes this is the man that assaulted me. Earlier on that same day, October 27th, he also had posed as a motorist claiming to have car trouble and attempted to enter a home in Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Now the homeowner, who was actually the future Brockton police chief, Richard Sprouls, he became very suspicious of the guy and actually fired his shotgun towards DeSalvo during this this altercation of him trying to get in. Why he was trying to get in there, you know, I don't know. It, it's, you, you have this guy who's obviously a police officer and later a chief of police. So it seems a bit odd, but he was shot at by him. Now, Albert DeSalvo, he, he initially he wasn't thought of being involved with the Boston Strangler murders. He, he actually was arrested and charged with rape. But then he gave this detailed confession of what he did as the Boston Strangler. He wasn't even arrested for those murders. He was arrested for something for a separate rape, not murder, and then he just confessed to it all. Now, initially his confession was to one of his fellow inmates by the name of George Nasser. Nasser reported this confession to his attorney, F. Lee Bailey. And F. Lee Bailey actually later Became the defense attorney for DeSalvo, and the reason that the police believed that he was the guy was because of the detail of his confession, the description that he had of the events and the murders, some of the information that he gave them pertaining to the individuals was too specific. So, for the crime scene, so they said, yeah, this this is our guy, but there were some inconsistencies, uh, citing some of the details that were withheld from the public at the time. Now in a 1971 book by F. Lee Bailey titled The Defense Never Rests um, it was said that DeSalvo got one detail correct that one of the victims was wrong about. DeSalvo described a blue chair in a woman's living room but this particular woman stated that it was brown. But Photographic evidence taken by the police actually showed that Albert DeSalvo was correct in it being blue. So was the woman wrong or lying? Because you'd think the color of a chair that somewhere you live, you're there all the time, you'd, you'd think you should know the color of your own chair, right? So for him to get that, that correct, say that it was blue, and then her to say it was brown and her to be wrong and him to be correct through photographic evidence, you know, it seems a bit odd and it it caused some controversy, but one of the things that was stated out of his confession. Um, But there was no physical evidence that substantiated all of his confessions. So because of this, he was tried on charges for earlier unrelated crimes for his robberies and these these sexual assaults and rapes that, that women started coming out now and saying, yes, he did this. One of them, which was they dubbed him known as the Green Man, and the Measuring Man, um, because of these these um, like characters he would come up with to get in their homes. Now, uh, F. Lee Bailey he brought up Albert DeSalvo's confession to the murders as part of his client's history at this other trial, basically in order to help gain a not guilty by reason of insanity verdict for these sexual offenses, but. Because he was being tried for this something separate, it was actually later determined to be inadmissible uh, by the judge in this trial. But later, in 1967, he would be sentenced to life in prison. Uh, So in February of 1967. So yeah, he was tried for life in prison in 1967. And then he actually escaped with two other inmates from the Bridgewater State Hospital. Um, this did, there was a manhunt, obviously looking for all them. Now, there was actually a note that DeSalvo had actually left, uh, in his bed that was addressed to the superintendent. DeSalvo actually stated in this note, he said that he had escaped to focus his attention on the conditions in the hospital and his own situation. Now, right after his escape, Albert DeSalvo, he actually disguised himself. So this is where him being arrested with the Navy uniform comes into play um, and why it kind of had some confusion. He, he disguised himself wearing this U.S. Navy uniform, the, the dress blues uniform with the petty officer insignia, but he actually gave him his own, his own self up uh, a few days later, Uh, excuse me, the very next, the following day. Gosh, I'm, he gave himself up the following day, um, after this. Because of this escape, they transferred him to the maximum security, Walpo State Prison and then six years after his his transfer he was actually found stabbed to death in the prison infirmary but his killer has never been identified as to who actually killed him so it's obviously thought that a fellow inmate had actually murdered him you can kind of understand why that you know you think about like sort of the you know you hear about like prisoners and the ideals that they have and, and, you know, people's crimes when they go into prison and, and kind of the hierarchy, 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 um, within prison systems of, of people who committed different crimes. And, you know, he was sexually assaulting and murdering all these women of different ages and, and he had been arrested for these rapes and all this. So there was obviously another inmate that I'm, I'm assuming, this is just me assuming that didn't agree with what he had done and, and the crimes he committed. And decided to take a little bit of a, uh, a prison justice out against him and kill him, him himself. So he was murdered in in prison himself. Let's talk about some of the theories behind uh, multiple killers. And some of the DNA evidence that came out later. So in 2013 there was DNA evidence that came out later. Um, and we'll talk about that here in a minute. But this casted a lot of doubt onto DeSalvo as the Boston Strangler. So when he confessed, you know, a lot, lot of people that knew him personally, family, friends, things like that, you know, said, oh no, this, this isn't the guy. He, he couldn't have done this. There's no way. You know, he wasn't capable of doing such a thing or, or such crimes that, that you got the wrong guy. Did they believe that he actually didn't commit them? Or was it just, you know, it's put yourself in that situation. If you had a family member that suddenly was imprisoned for these crimes and said that he confessed to all this, you know, it. I'm sure it'd be very hard to believe that, you know, knowing this family member or friend of yours, it'd probably be very difficult to say, to sit there and think, oh my gosh, like, wow, they really did this. But with the detailed confession he had, it's like, how did he have no such details? But anyways, there, there are a lot of different factors that, that cast a doubt on this as him being the serial killer involved in this. So, you know, one of the theories was that because these women were of all different ages, the the stranglings and the and the killings were done some of them differently. Most of them are strangled with their with nylon stockings. Some were stabbed. You know, all these different things was one of the the controversies that people thought that there's no way he's connected to all of these. You know that, you know that at the time it was kind of believed. You know, if somebody's gonna murder somebody, they're gonna murder somebody that's You know, the the same ethnicity, the the same age group. They're they're going to commit the murder the same way every single time. So that brought some controversy to them believing that he did it. Uh, Later in 1968, a doctor by the name of uh, Ames Roby, who was the medical director of the Bridgewater State Hospital, actually insisted that DeSalvo was, he wasn't the Boston Strangler. This doctor actually stated, said, quote, DeSalvo was a very clever, very smooth, compulsive confessor who desperately needs to be recognized. So, this doctor's opinion was also shared by District, District Attorney of Middlesex, John Droney, who was, at, um, as well as Bridgewater Superintendent Charles Goffin and George W. Harrison, who was a, a fellow inmate of DeSalvo's, they all kind of believed the same uh, opinion that he was desperately looking to be recognized for these murders. You know, he'd been arrested for these rapes. They did have evidence of that. It seemed like he was wanting to take the, the blame for it and say, yeah, that was me. I did this, you know, kind of the, the fame, if you will, for it, right? But these people, people believed that it wasn't him, that he was just looking for that recognition. So his fellow inmate, Harrison, he claims that he overheard another convict actually like helping or coaching DeSalvo about details of these murders to basically create this confession and have these details of it. So was this other inmate perhaps the actual murderer or had some inside information somehow from the murderer? That I'm not sure. So anyways, like I said, Harrison claims he had overheard this conversation with DeSalvo and another convict. And coaching him and, and telling him, here's the details on these murders. You know, to help him have that and then go and later confess. Now, DeSalvo's attorney, F. Lee Bailey, he said that he did believe that DeSalvo was the killer. Um, and he, again, described this in his book, The, the Defense Never Rests, in 1971. Now, Susan Kelly, the author of the book, The Boston Strangler, that, that published in 1996... She drew from files from Commonwealth, Massachusetts um, and a lot of other documents. And she argues that the murders were the work of several killers rather than this one man, DeSalvo. So in her book, I kind of want to read it. I I think it'd be worth reading to just to get more insight on it. Um, Like I said, it's called *The Boston Stranglers. It was published 1996 by Susan Kelly. Um, If you've read it, you know, let me know what you think of it. I think it would be a good one worth worth getting a reading just to get more insight um, on that and, and her thoughts and, and beliefs that it was multiple uh, people involved in these kill- killings. Now, a former FBI profiler by the name of Robert Ressler actually stated, said that, quote, you're putting together so many different patterns regarding the Boston Strangler murders that it's inconceivable behaviorally, that all these could fit one individual. So even this FBI profiler was basically saying, there's no way it's this one guy. It's got to be multiple people. Okay, and that's that's coming from an FBI profiler that's that's dealt with these sort of things before. So, all right, kind of makes you think, well, maybe, perhaps, maybe it is multiple. Maybe it is like they were saying that, you know, he was getting coached in prison by this other convict and, and on the confessions and just wanted that recognition and wanted to take, you know, take that and say, yes, I did this. I did these murders. Now, the FBI special agent, John Douglas, he was one of the first criminal profilers as well at this time. And he also says that he doubts that DeSalvo was the Boston Strangler. Now, he also wrote a book titled The Cases That Haunt Us. So this is a book that was published in 2000. Uh, like I said, by John E. Douglas, who was an FBI investigator profiler. Um, and it was also published by Mark Olshaker. And this was. So this book details cases, uh, including Lizzie Borden, Jack the Ripper, uh, the Black Dahlia, uh, Charles Lindbergh Jr. kidnapping, uh, the Zodiac Killer, the Boston Strangler, and others. So these two. Gentlemen, they explore these cases and use modern investigative techniques at the time to try to resolve these cases and come up with more information. So, again, that's one that I think would be pretty cool. Would be worth reading as well. So, in this book, Douglas he identified Desalvo as what he said, uh, quote, a power assurance motivated rapist. Basically, said that rapists like this are unlikely to kill in the manner that the Boston Strangler did and basically they're they're just prone to take credit for other crimes so they they go and rape people you know it's kind of like that one earlier that I mentioned where he broke in tied the lady sexually assaulted her and then left saying I'm sorry so did he maybe want to kill her maybe wanted to go further but couldn't or just use that and then later these other tales of these murders to say, yep, I'm taking credit for this. I did these crimes because nobody had been, else had been convicted of them. So, like I said, according to John Douglas, the FBI profi- uh, special agent profiler in this book, calls him a power assurance motivated rapist who, again, according to him, aren't going to kill in the manner such as this, but are going to take credit for such crimes. So, in 2000, same year that book was published. Uh, attorney and former print journalist Elaine Sharp. She took up the case of DeSalvo's family, and also that of the family of Mary Sullivan. Now Sullivan was publicized as being the final victim in 1964. Like I said before, now although other strangling murders had occurred after this date, Elaine Sharp she assisted the family. And their me- in their media campaign to actually help clear DeSalvo's name. Um, she helped organize and arrange the exhuming of Mary Sullivan's body and also Albert DeSalvo. Um, they filed various lawsuits in an attempt to obtain more information and evidence, especially DNA evidence from the government. And they worked with various producers to create documentaries, um, basically putting out the facts there, um, things that they had discovered at the time that that weren't available then and try to basically say that no he didn't do this despite her family Mary Sullivan obviously having lost you know their family member to these heinous murders they still agreed to this and believe that he was not her murderer. so with the help of Elaine Sharp they started looking at evidence and trying to to figure out rather who this was and then try to actually Say no, he didn't do this. Um, Sharp, she actually know, said that there were a lot of inconsistencies between his, DeSalvo's uh, confessions, and the crime scene information that she was able to obtain, what, what she was able to get. Um, so, like she observed, so his confession about Mary Sullivan's case, in particular her murder, uh, she was found to have no semen in or on her body. And she was also not strangled manually. But rather, based on what the evidence that Sharp found, she was strangled using a ligature. And according to DeSalvo, his confession information, that's not what he stated as far as the strangling. So this was a pretty common inconsistency that was also pointed out by Susan Kelly in several of the murders. She so obviously continued to work on the case for the DeSalvo family also as well to clear hit hit my table. To clear his name as the Boston Strangler, even though he confessed to it. Again, like I said before, the FBI investigator Douglas said that he was a power assurance motivated rapist who wanted to take credit for other crimes. So these seem like really big infamous crimes that he could confess to and claim that he did them. Now I mentioned just a little bit ago, before we talked about some of this stuff, in 2013, there was some new evidence that came about. So on July 11th, 2013, the Boston Police Department, they actually announced that they had found new DNA evidence linking DeSalvo to the murder of Mary Sullivan. The one we were just talking about, hit the last victim, supposedly, of the Boston Strangler. According to them, the Boston Police Department and this DNA evidence that they found They said that there was a quote near certain match of DNA taken from a nephew of Desalvo's. Now, this Y chromosome DNA it was it it passes directly through through males from male to male within your in within your direct family with uh, very little or no change, and can also and can be used to link men later on. So you can have an you know, a relative that's much older than you, if you're a man and they're a man, and you can have this DNA linkage that can link you to each other. So they that's what they use. They use this DNA from a nephew of DeSalvo's and linked it to Albert DeSalvo. Because of this, a court actually ordered DeSalvo's body be exhumed and test test his DNA to take get DNA directly from his body. So On July 19th, 2013, the Suffolk County District Attorney Daniel Conley, Massachusetts Attorney General Martha Coakley, and Boston PD Commissioner Edward Davis, they announced that the DNA results taken from DeSalvo's body and this nephew were a match, and that the source of the seminal fluid recovered from the scene of Mary Sullivan's 1964 murder were a match. So they said, based on this, that it definitely was him. So because of this, you kind of get some controversy, obviously, where you know you've got these multiple killer theories, you've got these different books that have been written, different evidence that has been brought about saying, no, he didn't do this, no, he's just taking credit. But then you have this evidence, DNA evidence that came out in two thousand thirteen that directly linked him to the final murder of Mary Sullivan. So. it has created some controversy into if he actually did or not but that's pretty strong evidence if they have dna evidence that they're able to link and say yes this is a match this is him that's pretty strong in saying that yeah he's our guy he did it i'm leaning towards believing that he did um despite the information coming from john douglas the fbi investigator with that book saying that he's just taking credit i know it's from what I looked into that too, it definitely seems very good as far as the information provided by them. I'm not saying they're wrong. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying their book is wrong. I'm sure it has very good information. I, I, just the little bit I read about it from it, it seems very good and very informative. If you want to read it, check it out yourself. I'm sure it's really good informative. Like I said, I just, I just skimmed through some of it. Um, I, I haven't purchased or read the entire book, but just what I was able to find online just about this case. It's definitely good information, but the DNA evidence seems pretty strong that if they're able to get it directly from one of his nephews, directly from his exhumed body, link it directly with seminal fluid they say they found. But again, it also creates another controversy because Elaine Sharp claims that from information she had, that there was no seminal fluid in or on Mary Sullivan's body. So again, it's like, okay, they have this DNA evidence in 2013 claiming from seminal fluid, but if one person's saying that there's no seminal fluid found in or on her body, where did they get that seminal fluid from? Or was the information or evidence that Sharp found not complete or inaccurate? Did Boston PD have more information or more evidence that they were holding that they didn't give to the public? That's possible, and you have to consider that in an investigation you're not always going to get all of the information to the public. You know, as law enforcement, you know, you don't want to just give them everything right away. Hey, here, there's a lot of stuff that you're going to hold close to you, right, as law enforcement because you don't want to go public right away if, if you don't have the right information or, or know 100% you have the right person and just give all that information out there. So perhaps they had seminal fluid that that they had from back then that they didn't use maybe knowing that they didn't quite have the um, ability to test the DNA properly at the time. You know, you see this a lot in cases where they'll collect DNA evidence of whatever kind from cases years, decades back, but they don't have the ability to test it back then, and they just leave it in their evidence. And then later, you know, investigators come along with modern techniques and retest that DNA with what we have now and are able to help you know, find more information within cases or help close cases or, or help convict somebody that should have been convicted or, or help maybe find somebody that was wrongly, wrongfully convicted, whatever, things like that. So it kind of makes you think that maybe that's kind of the case here. Maybe they had the seminal fluid, but they didn't put that information out there for people like Elaine Sharp, who did this book, you know, maybe she didn't have all of the information. Again, I'm not saying that she's wrong in what she wrote seems like all pretty good information and evidence as well. But at the time, you got to consider that was 2000. That was 13 years between this this DNA evidence. So it kind of makes me think that perhaps Boston PD did have this evidence somewhere that they weren't putting out there for public to see. So my thoughts are is that he's the Boston Strangler, that he did do it. I, I think that, that there's too much of that evidence in DNA, with the DNA evidence to say otherwise, to say he wasn't. If you think differently, if you have a different opinion or idea about it, let me know. I'd love to hear your ideas or thoughts about it. Um, I thought this was kind of an interesting. One, I know I've listened to other podcasts about it in the past. I I vaguely remember listening to one from another podcast a few years ago. Um, I always thought it was kind of an interesting one. You know, you you see these ones from years and decades ago, and then to see evidence come out. You know, two thousand thirteen. That's fifty years later um, from when the murders happened that's kind of amazing to think about that they can take DNA or not just DNA, but evidence from 50 years ago and using modern technology to, you know, look into that and, and, and help close the case and figure out was this the one or not? Was this the person that committed the crimes or not? So again, I'm leaning towards, he was, maybe he didn't commit all of them, but I definitely believe with that evidence, he committed the last one of Mary Sullivan, the 19 year old. So again, if you have any ideas or thoughts about it, let me know. Let me know what you think. Was he the guy? Was he the Boston Strangler? Was it someone else that they just never caught? You know, I think he was, but if you have other ideas or thoughts, let me know. I'd love to hear it. So, um, if you enjoy this, let me know. You can reach out to me on Facebook, our weird world. You can send me an email at our weird world podcast at gmail.com if you have any stories information suggestions ideas thoughts comments whatever let me know i'd love to hear it and the next one let me see let me check my list here give you a little sneak peek number four so let's see number four that would be arkansas and what do i have on the arkansas list well you'll have to wait until the next episode (laughs) sorry about that but anyways thanks for listening